welcome to the Book Blast podcast, our international podcast series, Bridging the Divide, Translation and the Art of Empathy, showcases a selection of the best writing in translation from around the world being published this year in the UK by 10 leading independent houses and a special guest. This interview is being recorded via Zoom during the COVID-19 lockdown. I'll now hand over to my podcast co-host, Lucy Popescu. I'm delighted to interview Lulu Norman, who translated Tasmamar, Aziz Bean Bean's extraordinary account of his 18 years he spent in Morocco's secret prison. Tasmamar was an underground military prison where those considered enemies of the king were detained from 1972 to 1991. It was built after two failed coup d'etat against Hassan II of Morocco. On 10th of July 1971, around a 1,000 soldiers were driven to Skihat Palace, where the king was celebrating his birthday, and when a shot was fired, panic ensued. Many of those detained were unwitting participants in the alleged coup, and like Aziz Bin Bin, a recent graduate of the Royal Military Academy, had not fired a shot. He was one of several army officers sent to Tazmamar. His account of his time there, sensibly translated by Lulu Norman, is a must-read for anyone interested in human rights and Morocco's hidden past. The prisoners were housed in cramped underground cells, so they could not distinguish between night and day. They were offered little in the way of food and no protection from the summer heat and winter cold. Not surprisingly, over half of those incarcerated in Tasmamar died from starvation, disease gangrene and despair. Lulu, you've translated Albert Kossary, Mamed Dawish and Mahi Binbin's Welcome to Paradise, which was shortlisted for the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize. How did you come across his brother Aziz's work? Um, I was actually translating a book by um, his brother Mahi Binbin and I was in Marrakesh to work with Mahi. Um, and then one day Aziz who I didn't really know, gave me, gave me this book. Um, of course, I knew what had happened to him or I knew the broad outlines of it, but he was very shy. He was very polite and he didn't push it. And I was obviously a bit slow. I thought the book was a present. Um, <laughs> so there, there must've been a gentle nudge from one of them or the penny must've dropped somehow, but that was a lot later to, <laughs> to my absolute shame. I know you spent some time trying to find a UK publisher for Tasmamar. As a translator, why did you feel that you had to champion Azizi's work? I mean, effectively finding him a publisher. And what were you up against? Is this more common than we realise in the world of English translation, given that a survey commissioned by the Man Booker International Prize revealed that fiction in translation accounts for 7% of sales? Well, it's fairly common for me. Um, and for other translators, I'm sure. It was the same with Mahi Binbin's first book. And when I first tried to get Albert Kossiri published many years ago, um, I think translators often have ideas for books that are at least as good as editors. Um, and they can often be more enmeshed or more active in the culture than agents and scouts. Um, but, you know, you have to really believe in a book to to do this because it's a lot of work. You have to become them for a while and fight on their behalf and make sure the voice gets across um, and you have to persist. You know, I have done it a few times um, as well as being asked to um, do books. Um, 
but um, of course we're up against a fair bit doing it this way around. Um, editors are always telling writers there's never been a tougher time, etc. And it's completely right. I mean, it's true. There's always a lot of competition for attention. But with this book, I was surprised it didn't just walk into print. People I had worked with before just weren't particularly interested. And if they loved it, and, you know, the readers' reports were extremely good, um, they'd say they couldn't build a market case. You know, they just thought it wasn't commercial enough. Um, and obviously I don't agree, but not everyone can see the importance of a book like this. And sometimes the publisher has to take a longer view. Why did Aziz want to write about his ordeal some 18 years after his release? This was originally published in 2009. How did he manage to dredge up such painful memories and recall such horror? I mean, was there anything that he had to do to protect himself while revisiting the past? Um, I think that the 18 years he spent there are always present to him. Um, so I don't think it's a question of dredging up or or recalling or even suffering as he as he remembers or as he wrote the book. Um, I think it's almost an alternate reality he's decided not to engage with in some way, in the same way as, as when he was in Tasmania, he decided that the way to survive was to forget everything outside his cell. Um, he had to um, make as if his family, his friends, his past, um, the world outside didn't exist or he would just die of it, you know. Um, but he, he said an interesting thing, which was that he thinks about it now uh, in the same way he would think of a story he's read or heard, something quite outside of him, um, which I suppose is, is in a way forming that protection you, you were asking about. Um, this is what he somehow knew he had to do to, to learn how to live again. Um, and I think he almost did it at the exact same time that he was released. Um, but when he when he actually sat down to write it, he said it came of its own accord and was completely done at a gallop. Um, writing the book, he was just trying to work out, you know, how to get it all down before he forgot it, trying to get all the chronologies right, trying to get the orders of people's deaths even right. Um, also remembering the exact sequence of events in their lives. Um, so um, I think it was more about um, trying to remember. Why was it important for Aziz to give each of his fellow prisoners a voice in the book? What was his aim? Um, I think when something so terrible has been sort of revealed to the world, there's always a lot of emphasis on the survivors. And I think that um, that's natural and people are fascinated. But actually a very few num a very few number of prisoners survived to the end. So I think Aziz didn't want to forget the dead. You know, they, they were his friends, his comrades, sometimes people he'd just got to know. He, he lived through their deaths intimately. And by then he'd also heard about everything about their lives um, and wanted to honor them. Um, and of course, I think this was his whole motivation for writing it at all, because um, when you read the book, you fully understand that, you know, to talk about their deaths is also to talk about their lives. And mm. then they live again. Um, and it was a sort of duty also to their families. Um, you have that brilliant line in your review, um, 
when he says, um, I want to pay homage to those men, to the ones not here to tell their suffering, their joy, their hopes and regrets. I want to relate as honestly as possible how they lived and how they died, reported as I lived it, as I felt it, for their families and for everyone who feels on their own cheek the slap that someone else receives. Yes, and I think that's crucial, that whole idea of forgiveness. How easy is it to forgive a regime and one's former torturers? Aziz's father was also a favourite at the court of Hassan II. Has Aziz spoken to you about the road to forgiveness and was it perhaps necessary to write about his experiences in order to begin the process? So the act of writing becomes an act of empathy in itself, trying to understand the mindset of the gods. What are your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, more than any book I can think of, um, this book is empathy enacted or, or more than that, like a discipline or practice of empathy. It's about the tenderest book I've ever read. And it's a homage, as he says. Um, in the act of writing, I think he only really wrote about himself to write about his fellow prisoners, his friends. He, he realised he had to tell his own story in order to bind their stories together into a proper narrative um, or it would have been too disparate. Um, and as he put it to me, when he was alone in his cell in the dark with no past or future, he had a very obvious choice between feeling angry, feeling regret and hatred or, or forgetting and forgiving and loving. And I think he chose to fight. And I, I do think that was the fight. Um, I think it's obvious in the text that he was already forgiving to at least some extent when he was imprisoned. He was forgiving the guards and the cruelty of some of his fellow prisoners. And he somehow saw they were suffering, you know, more than he was. And he could see that hatred and resentment and regret was only gonna poison the person who entertained them. Um, and he also had extraordinary understanding about his father um, as you say, he was one of Hassan II's closest confidants um, and he remained close to him. Um, and as he understood that his father was a courtier to his bones, um, that he'd been um, educated that way. He'd grown up in a court of the Pasha al-Glawi um, and that he had this kind of cult of the prince and that he really couldn't have done anything differently. Um, so he wasn't angry with him. Um, he tried to sing his pain and sing others' pain. He's got an epigraph from Tagore to that effect, um, singing your pain being sweeter to God's ears than, than crying it. Um, mm. So it's a kind of extraordinary uh, uh, way that he sings his, the courage of, and faith of his, of his fellow prisoners. Lily, we would not know so much about this horrific desert prison, Tasmanmar, had it not, not been written about and then translated to reach a wider readership. Aziz mentions French journalist Gilles Perrault's Notre Ami Le Roy, Our Friend the King, in 1991, which helped bring about the closure of Tasmanmar. As I know from my time at Penn, books can effectively bring about political change. What were Aziz's primary motives? to lay ghosts to rest, to encourage empathy, to effect change. The world he depicts is barely imaginable for those of us living in a democracy. I think books can uh, change the culture, though it's often 
um, in, imperceptible at the time. And it can lead, but I, I think it can lead to a tipping point. Certainly that happened here um, towards the toppling of a regime or a change in policy, et cetera. Um, but it was also like, as you say, activism. I mean, particularly on the part of this extraordinary woman, Christine Dorcer Fati, who um, I had the privilege to meet before she died. Um, it was about speaking out and persisting and not giving up, you know. Um, mm. Well, um, I think part of the reason people want to tell their story after something that extreme happens is, is the idea or the hope that it won't happen again. And of course it is happening again and um, all over the world to people who are wrongly imprisoned, um, you know, for something they didn't do, for their beliefs, for speaking out, often on behalf of others. Um, so yeah, everyone should join. <laughs> How does translation change perceptions of our world? Humankind's inability to cope with difference or the need to create difference um, is as old, you know, and persistent as time. Um, we make other people other to kind of cope with our own lives. Um, and there's a kind of moral relativism going on. Um, and, you know, point of view is everything. You know, that goes back to Diderot, at least. The same person may have entirely different points of view just you know walking along the street as opposed to driving so um you know it's there's no i think in that sense translation is utterly a political act because it explodes that whole idea of point of view you know to look through another's eyes and try to transpose their cultural background their point of view through language um to me, that's the thrill, you know, it's the glorious antidote to our own fixed assumptions and prejudices or, uh, you know, our own culture. It forces you to question it and examine it. Um, and, you know, for a translator, that comes at the level of a sentence or a word. Um, and that's the that's the salvation, you know, it saves you, as Edward Or St. Orbin would say, from the catastrophe of a fixed meaning. Can we talk a little more about the importance of empathy? Um, sure. I don't know. Empathy is everything, really, isn't it? It's the it's the condition of being human. Um, if you're placed in the skin of someone you've never thought about before, you enter you enter their consciousness, um, and then you see everything around you differently, and it makes everything much more fluid. And you realise that people are only a, a membrane apart. You know, um, mm. there's no barriers or borders or anything about it. Um, uh, you know, but that the, the, the fact, you know, it's when it becomes fixed and hardened and you need to protect yourself against that porousness and turn it into a point of view or a position, a political position. That's another thing entirely. You know, you're protecting yourself from being human to make yourself feel stronger. Um, and I was reading the other day, Ken Burns saying, you know, it's easier to be afraid than to welcome change, to vilify others than to see what you share, you know, as if to be vulnerable, it's to be weak, you know, which is obviously completely the opposite. Um, Aziz quotes the La Fontaine fable about the reed and the oak, or that goes back to that Chinese proverb that the unbending is easily broken. A translator is faced by singular challenges when translating literature in terms of fidelity to the original, linguistic, in this case French, Arabic, Berber, the period and the author's intentions. What were the particular issues you had to deal with when translating Tasmamar? 
Um, I suppose it starts off in a, in a kind of soldier's um, language, maybe. Um, very simple, very factual. It's really just relating events. Um, and then it begins to expand the voice and the vocabulary changes. Um, mm. he, he enters and sounds out the kind of dimensions of this terrible new universe he's in and begins to adapt to it. And obviously that's all mirrored in the language. Um, but it did have this extreme sense of urgency. Um, but it's very well written, which makes it a lot easier to translate. You know, mm. he's, he's very educated um, as well. Um, and you get this feeling of a, a wisdom and a, and a spirituality being activated. Um, I always am obsessed with ry rhythm, um, but if he, I mean, he's such a storyteller and he honed his craft telling stories in prison um, that you really, you really, it jumps into, into English. Um, you get the impact of the oral tradition. You get that kind of prefiguring and repetition that builds up the and maintains the suspense. Um, you know, everybody in prison hung on his every word. Mm. Um, and, it, and it felt absolutely, the story was a lifeline. So um, it's very kind of Scheherazade-like in that way. And, but there was also lots of quotations from, from uh, wide, widely in literature. So I found myself doing, you know, translating Verlaine, Proust, Baudelaire, Lamartine, um, and the other thing was there was a lot of army terminology. So, and I, you know, had no idea about <laughs> equipment or ranks or guns, you know, and there weren't equivalents for a lot of, you know, those ranks in the Moroccan army to the English or the British. Um, so I need to do a fair bit of research on that and, and also some Berber and Arab history as well as French history. How involved was Aziz in this and what was your working process like? Um, Aziz was, was um, on email throughout the whole process and I was endlessly annoying him and checking things. And, and then when he thought it was over, I'd start again. And then, of course, the later on, the, the editor had some questions as well. Um, but emailing, you know, you can't really talk about very sensitive things very easily or you can't get the nuance um, so I always try and go to see the writer if I can um, and we did spend a couple of days going through the sort of outstanding issues um, and that was wonderful he, he was just ridiculously polite and I mean excuse me not polite he was polite but um, patient you know he was just unfailingly patient completely unprecious and and he just sort of trusted me um in a extraordinary way um as to working process oh for various reasons i had to do the first draft longhand which was a huge mistake and made the whole thing a lot more laborious um there was a lot of mad scribbling on endless bits of paper um <laughs> and I was moving house and then I broke my arm and generally, you know, I tried to sort of echo the um, misery. Um, but I had a, I had a, I did have this massive sense of urgency, um, which I always have with the first draft. I just want to get it kind of in, in me as soon as possible. Um, but I think also here it was the urgency of the narrative and 
I know now that that's how he wrote it. Um, but I did notice I had to stop every time somebody died and almost mm. it was, you know, I did need to honour them myself before I could go on to the next bit. Um, and I think I did, you know, translators always must inhabit uh, the the story they, they're translating and, you know, even the tiniest bit of what he felt, you know, wasn't easy. Um, yeah, so that that's it really. I, I mean, I do make little lists of words and that they always turn out to be the themes of the book. And this time it was mostly pain and darkness, you know, but, um, but I, I don't know. Uh, then I, I get someone to check it. I speak to my French friend who about language. Um, and then I, you know, go, um, go through it again and again and again. I, I, I take the line for a walk. I play around with it. I check the balance and the rhythm and, um, but I didn't really have to hesitate that much about what words to choose. Mm. Um, I felt like I very much knew which way I was going and, and what was going to work. And, but then, you know, it's endless, endless rechecking and rewriting. In your view, what makes a good translator? Um, well, it helps if you identify with what you're translating, of course, but, um, I think basically you have to have a certain elasticity of language. Um, so you need to be able to match the language that's coming to you. Um, so you need to read a lot. You need to have as much, you know, everything possible available to you to choose, you know, so, so as to create the similar effect in the target language. Um, so I guess an elasticity and a love of language. Um, and then it's really about how well you listen to it, you know, how well you hear it. What are you working on next? I am doing a Algerian book about the revolution a year ago, which is an extraordinary collection of um, stories and um, photographs and essays and poems um, about the the Algerian revolution in, in 2019 and then I'm and then I'm stopping translating and just gonna uh, do my own writing. Oh do you know who's gonna publish it yet? No no idea I'm, I'm you know I'm at that horrible stage of uh, about to send it out. Parts of Tasmamar read like Greek tragedy. Could you finish with a short reading that exemplifies the essence of Aziz Binbin's writing and voice and style? This is one of my favourite people in the book. Um, it wasn't only smell that betrayed death's presence. It had other messengers. The first was the owl. About a month before someone died, it would come every evening at the same time, hoot for a while, and then fly off until the next night. On the night of the death, it did not come, but waited instead for its next customer. There were also premonitory dreams. We were never sad when a comrade departed. We were relieved for him. We were convinced that the more he suffered during his death throes, the greater the injustice done him and the deeper the absolution for his sins. In short, we were dying as martyrs to each his own beliefs, his own lifeline. For us, the year started in November with the arrival of the bitter cold. 
The 9th of December 1977 began the dark saga of the year we will never forget. The owl had come to stay. The smell of death was permanent and the foreboding dreams kept coming. In my rope, there was Alal Muhaj, a flight sergeant who on that fateful day happened to be on leave. So what was he doing at the airbase? He was just hanging around. His fellow pilots had gone and he was hanging around. His wife and little girls were waiting for him at home. They were planning to visit relatives and he was just hanging around. What was he waiting for? This was the question that nagged at him until he breathed his last. Yet the answer was simple. He was waiting to meet his fate because he loved his job, the atmosphere at the base, the noise of planes landing and taking off, the sound of the jet engines being tested by mechanics, the great hum of all this teeming life, day and night, as if in a bubble of its own. Like all those who fly, he also felt somewhat apart, slightly outside of reality and the world. He saw himself in others' eyes as if looking in a mirror at his own image, which exuded poetry, mystery, adventure and heroics. He was heir to Saint-Exupéry, Mermoz and so many others. He loved flying. It was his whole life. But that morning, while he was on leave, just passing the time of day, just hanging around, he was to fly for the last time. Flight sergeant, get yourself into gear and get stuck in. The order stung his face like a whip. It came from the base commander. How could he dispute an order? What would he say? That he was on leave? Then what was he doing there? Nothing. He was hanging around. He left his young wife, his little girls, and a promising career, and ended up at Tasmamar, because that day he'd been hanging around. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time and for giving us an invaluable insight into Aziz Bean Bean's work. Thank you. Tasmamart, 18 Years of Morocco's Secret Prison by Aziz Bin Ebin, translated by Lulu Norman, is published by House and is available from online outlets such as Waterstones, Foils, Daunt Books, Hive and Amazon. An interview with publisher Harry Hall can be read online at The Book Blast Diary. To buy the book from your local independent bookseller, you can find your nearest store by visiting www.booksellers.org.uk forward slash bookshop search. This podcast is brought to you by Book Blast. For more bookishness between episodes, visit online journal The Book Blast Diary or find us on Twitter at Book Blast. Special thanks to sound editor Rupert Such, theme tune composer Edward Campbell, and to translator Lulu Norman for taking the time to be interviewed by Lucy Popescu. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Book Blast podcast. Mm-hmm.